Hi, we here at Grace Life would love to help you discover Jesus' unconditional love and grace for you. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you and further establish you in the truth of God's Word. Romans 10, 9, and 10. Do you remember that? We talked about that is the core elements of the Christian faith. Shall we quote it together? Romans 10, 9, and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. And we went through that part. How can we confess? We are not confessing him as prophet, but as Lord. We must know and believe in our hearts that he is indeed Lord for that to be a confession of faith, right? So we went through the Gospel of Mark. He mentioned many, he referred to the Old Testament and mentioned many things that the Old Testament said that only God can do. After that, he showed Jesus doing those very things and that proved that Jesus was indeed God. Amen? Amen? Still is, but just to say. So that is what we looked at uh, last time. Now, I just want to share, uh, in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So in other words, we are supposed to be able to give an answer for why we believe what we believe. And if somebody asks you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And you say yes, and they say, why do you believe it? If you just say, just because, I just do, do you know that a lot of Christians have been accused of what they call blind faith. Blind faith, they say, ah, you just believe because somebody said so, but actually you have no proof, right? So like in the dictionary it says that blind faith, faith is belief without true understanding, perception, or discrimination. So and in, in Proverbs 11.30, it says, He that wins souls is wise. Now, we are here on a mission. Our mission is to win souls for Jesus. Amen. And when we encounter people who want to go deeper, who don't want to go by what is labeled as blind faith, but who actually seeks understanding, we need to study, to prepare ourselves to be able to give an answer than just because. Mm. Amen? Amen? Because just because it doesn't do it for everybody. Some might take it, but not everybody will do that. And for example, in Jude 1.3, it said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Do you understand what Jude is saying? Jude said, I got ready to sit down and write you a letter about salvation. My intent was to write about salvation, 
but the Holy Spirit redirected me to exhort you to contend for the faith. If you read Jude, there's only one chapter, but you will see that he is contending for the faith, standing up for the faith, fighting for the faith. And as I said, that was not what he intended, but it was important enough that the Holy Spirit redirected him to do that. So we need to really be able, we need to study so that we can defend the faith. Why is that so important? Why? We believe what we believe, let them believe what they believe, right or wrong? What do you think? <coughs> wrong, why is that wrong? Why am I to quote unquote impose my belief on other people, why? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to impose my beliefs, make somebody believe what I believe? Why would I want to do that? Because it's not just a matter of having an opinion. It is a matter of life or death. Acts 4.12 says, neither is there salvation in any other. And what is salvation? Everlasting life, eternal life. Neither is there salvation in any other. Uh, given under in the outing, but in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the one and only that can deliver us from death into life. And so we don't try to exchange opinions. We try to shine our lights, right? We try to shine our lights because it says in Habakkuk 4:6 that my people perish for lack of knowledge. What do you mean perish for lack of knowledge? Perish is to die, perish. So knowledge is light, understanding is light, amen? So we need to understand whom we have believed. So today, as I said, I would like to speak about the other part of Romans 10, 9 and 10. We have talked about Jesus being Lord, right? It says now we have to also believe that uh, God rose him from the raised him from the dead. Mm. Now, in order to be raised from the dead, you have to first die, right? That's uh, quite straightforward. And now, uh, there are, for example, in the Islamic religion, they say that Jesus did not die. They say that the Quran makes it says it that. God made it appear as if, but that he didn't actually die. But now let's look at that then, okay? So there is a, a famous uh, scholar, or he is actually a German philosopher, a sociologist, student of critical theory and pragmatism, a very learned man, all right? And he drew up what is known as the minimal facts approach. Minimal, like the these basic facts. You approach the whole issue from these basic facts, all right? And what he said, he said, um, so no, okay, now, the first of all, this minimal facts approach is for the resurrection. It is in order to prove the resurrection of Jesus based on its ability to explain the relevant historical facts. 
Now, how do people check things through history? Historical facts that are strongly evidenced. So now it's not just somebody's opinion. What is recorded in history? And what is recorded in history by more than one source, right? So, and granted by virtually all scholars on the subject, even the skeptical ones. In other words, if something is so strongly evidenced that even although in my heart I don't agree with that, but yet I can't deny the evidence, right? That's how, that's how strong it has to be. It's not that we have to just believe something because the scholars believe, but why did they believe? Because the evidence is so strong that really they can't deny it. Let me give you an example. Say somebody testifies about the Titanic. You know about the big, gigantic ocean liner, the Titanic, that, that sank, right? Now, I could say, I don't believe that sank. I actually just believe they made a detour, they went somewhere else, right? They, but would you believe my words? That I don't, when I say I don't believe it sank? Why would you not believe my words? Because there are such strong evidence that it sank. So many reports about it sinking. Witnesses, people that were on that ship that suffered but survived, right? So there is too much testimony against my words. So although I may not believe it yet, I cannot deny the evidence because there's so much strong evidence that it did happen. So I'll have to say, okay, well, all right, I guess it did sink. Amen? And that's why the historical fact backs up the truth. When even skeptics and unbelievers have to agree, it did happen. All right? So now this Herbermas, this scholar, he said, we all see the historical evidence through the lenses of our own prejudices. In other words, I have preconceived ideas. And the way I see things, the way I hear the things you speak to me about, goes through the filters of my own preconceived ideas. Right? So, we are all biased or inclined for or against things. That is why we have to put certain checks and balances in place. That is why we cannot just discuss opinion. There has to be something more solid to it, right? And those are the checks and balances that we have to put to it. Like, why am I speaking so much about this? Because we, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proven, and so is his death on the cross. It is recorded in history by unbelievers, by atheists, by skeptics, and therefore, we can conclude that it is indeed so. Amen? So under this approach, the minimal facts approach, only two facts, only facts, sorry, that meet two criteria. So there are two criteria that must be met in order for it to be accepted under this minimal facts approach. The first one is, there must be strong historical evidence. Strong historical evidence. 
And the other was, what I mentioned before, the evidence must be so strong that the vast majority of today's scholars on the subject, including skeptical ones, accept them as historical facts. Like the Titanic, I would have to accept that it went down because there's too much evidence against my opinion, right? So now, the minimal facts approach that this scholar wrote up for the resurrection of Jesus, there's three to five points, but I'll do the five, okay? Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, Jesus was raised from the dead, and his followers truly believed the reason Jesus had appeared to them. Number three, Paul, a persecutor of the church, was converted after seeing Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was converted after seeing Jesus. And the tomb was empty. Those are the five points. So first, Jesus died by crucifixion. So Muslims do not believe that Jesus actually died. They have two theories. And now I want to say that a friend wrote to me and told me that she had heard a report that by 2060, we are now in uh, 2022, right? So that by, by, by 2060, that the Muslim religion planned to take over all of Southern Africa, not just South Africa, but all of Southern Africa. Now that is bad news. Why is that bad news? Because their religion is a deceit. They agree with many of the Christian beliefs, but not the core, the central beliefs that are the life-giving beliefs that they don't believe. So it's bad news, but darkness can only conquer light if the light doesn't shine. Amen? So we, the light is always stronger than the darkness. Light always overcomes the darkness. And we are the light of the world. So we need to shine our lights. Amen? So, um, I'm just going to skip a little bit. I will go back to some things if I have time. But let me first talk about the swoon theory. Now, we know the old word for swoon is kind of like when you faint, right? But the swoon theory, um, they, that, they say that Jesus somehow miraculously survived the cross. However, there's absolutely no record of anybody having ever survived a full crucifixion. But they said that he did, and that he was taken down alive, placed in a tomb to heal, and then escaped the clutches of Romans. But if you have just gone through a crucifixion and left in a tomb to heal, you wouldn't heal. You would require lots of medical attention. You would not just be laid alone in a dark place and heal. Amen? So, his feet would have been broken, his hands would have been paralyzed, his sides pierced, his, side, his, side pierced, his body mutilated, 
and otherwise incapacitated. It would have taken a miracle for Jesus to even have walked out of the tomb. And remember the tomb, if he was in that bad shape, having just survived, remember the tomb was guarded. How would he get out? How would he push aside the stone and not be stopped by the Roman soldiers? That requires a lot of faith to believe this, right? That he just survived. And then imagine him on the road to Emmaus when he walked with some of the disciples. Imagine what he would have looked like if he had just survived crucifixion, barely made it, right? Such horrible abuse, he would have had a catastrophic blood loss and trauma. So do you think that the disciples would have held him as victorious, the victorious conqueror of death? Do you think they would have looked forward to having a resurrection? body like Jesus, just having walked out of a tomb, having been completely mutilated and, and basically destroyed. No, no, Jesus died and was raised again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, besides, the Roman soldiers were experts at killing people. That was their job, and they did it very well. They knew without a doubt when a person was dead. Did you know that if a prisoner escaped, the responsible soldier would be put to death themselves? And we have an example of that in Acts 16, 27. So there it said, and the keeper of the prison, remember this was Paul and Silas. They had been thrown, what is Peter and Silas or Paul and Silas? But two of the disciples. They'd been thrown into jail, and they sang and praised God at night, and the prison doors miraculously, there was an earthquake, the prison doors miraculously opened, and Paul and Silas, and so I was right. So, and the warden thought that the prisoner had escaped. So, and the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. So apparently he preferred to kill himself rather than to be put to death. But so, do you think that the Roman soldiers would have let a criminal sentenced to death by crucifixion survive? It would be their death in place of the man. So they definitely would not. And that what I just read was Acts 16:27. So we can rest assured that the Roman soldiers were diligent to carry out their orders as their own lives were at stake. Yeah. Amen? So, and according to historical records, the disciples preached Jesus as the Lord of life, risen in glory. If you had a mutilated body, that would not be glory. Amen? Amen. And that... That belief propelled them to spurn death. You know, they were so fully persuaded, they were willing to die for their faith. If it had been a lie, if it had not been so, do you think they would all be willing to die for it? No. And then the other, the other theory is what they, it's called the substitution. So the swoon theory was what we just read, that somehow Jesus miraculously survived. Right? The other one is the swoon, and that's more commonly believed. But they believe that Jesus' face 
was placed on someone else. They believed that it was either Simon of Cyrene, who literally switched places with Jesus as he was carrying the cross to the site of the crucifixion. So you remember the story that Jesus fell under the weight of the cross and the Roman soldiers called another man to come and carry the cross for Jesus, right? But so they say that God switched faces so that that man looked like Jesus and Jesus looked like that man so that Jesus could escape. So they say that it wasn't actually Jesus that was crucified, but it was the man that carried the cross. Or they say, or maybe Judas Iscariot who betrayed him because he deserved to die. But it wasn't Jesus. That's what they say. The Quran 4, 175 says, and their boast, behold, we have slain the Christ Jesus, son of Mary, who claimed to be an apostle of God. However, they did not slay him, and neither did they crucify him, but it only seemed to them as if it had been so. And verily, those who hold conflicting views thereon are indeed confused, having no real knowledge thereof, and following mere conjuncture. For a certain they did not slay him. That's what the Quran says. So now we have to believe, based on historical facts, what do you believe? Do you believe that, or do you believe that Jesus rose again? Amen? Amen. But good. now, I like to tell you this. If Allah saved Jesus from the cross, while making it look like Jesus died, then Allah is responsible for the disciples' proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. Therefore, Allah started Christianity, a false religion that has kept billions away from Islam. Worse, Christians believe Jesus is God because of his resurrection. Yet the Quran tells us that people who believe Jesus is God will go to hell. But did you hear that? If Allah saved Jesus from the cross, while making it look like Jesus died, then Allah is responsible for the disciples' proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. Therefore, Allah started Christianity, a false religion that has kept billions away from Islam. Worse, Christians believe Jesus is God because of his resurrection. Yet the Quran tells us that people who believe Jesus is God will go to hell. In the Quran 5.72 it says, Assuredly, they have disbelieved who say, God is the Messiah, son of Mary. Whereas the Messiah himself proclaimed, O children of Israel, worship God, my Lord, and your God. Whoever associates partners with God, God has surely made paradise forbidden to him, and his refuge is the fire, and the wrongdoers will have no helpers. So in other words, if you believe Jesus was the Son of God, the Quran says you're going to go to the fire. We know the fire is hell, right? But there are 122 verses that call for fighting and killing anyone who does not agree with the Shahada statement, or that is the Muslim statement of faith. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. 
Jews and Christians are specifically included among such infidels. So you see, many people are sort of confused, and they don't see the big difference between Islam and Christianity. Because Islam, they believe Jesus was born in the Virgin, they believe he did miracles, they believe he was a prophet, they believe the disciples were good people, but the very core, the life-giving core of the Christian message is what they're adamantly against and what it is forbidden to believe. That is why we need to shine our light while it's still day, while we still can preach the gospel. Amen? And we all know that Jesus so loved the world. We can all tell somebody, Jesus loves you. And that is an effective witness just by itself. I, I have that. I told my testimony once before when I was a drug addict and didn't have absolutely no fellowship with God. He was not in all my thoughts. I passed someone on the street that told me, Jesus loves, loves you. And that was like Mother Mary. I pondered this saying in my heart. It was so weird, so strange. I'd never heard something like that before. So let's not be shy. Let's stand up and shine the light. Amen? Amen. So um, anyway, it says about the Surah 533, says about infidels, they shall be slain or crucified or have their hands and feet cut off. Surah 9.5 says, slay the infidels wherever you find them and lie in wait for them, and so on and so forth. So in other words, Islam, many, I, I'm, I say many believe that Islam is a peaceful religion. And I want to say Muslims, they sincerely do believe that Islam is a peaceful religion because they are not encouraged to read the Quran. Basically, they don't know the Quran. They know what the Imam or what the teacher at the synagogue, um, at the mosque tells them. That is what they, they, so a lot of them, we need to love them because a lot of them are sincerely deceived. They just don't know. So if we do meet Muslims, like Shane, our lead pastor has said, become their friend and little by little help them to see, I'm giving this to you. But this should never be passed like that directly to them. That would be more hurtful mm. than helpful. Yeah. But we, we need to have conviction in our hearts. And we need to know the truth. Because God is not only love. Jesus said, I am the truth. And see, it's the truth that sets people free. When people are deceived, that brings bondage. Yeah. That brings fear. And that is not God's will or his way. Amen? Amen. Now, the second point, the second fact that Jesus' followers truly believed the risen Jesus had appeared to them. Historians are also convinced that they came to believe that they'd seen Jesus. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5, 1 Corinthians 15, oh no, verses 3 through 7, there is what is called a creed. That is actually, Paul is quoting something that he did not write. But a creed is a statement of faith. A statement of faith that the disciples confessed even before 
Paul wrote the epistles or anyone wrote the gospels. They had been with Jesus and it was at least 50, 60 years after the death of Jesus before any of the New Testament was written. But this what is called the creed. So they had written down, the believers had written down their basic faith and they circulated it among each other. And this one was written according to the historical evidence about five years after Jesus was crucified, okay? Um, I had that. You will read it here. So, it says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So apparently, Paul received this creed from somebody. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, the scriptures bring it out that he would be pierced, that it would be by crucifixion. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, which is Peter, then by the twelve, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and lastly, by Paul himself. But now here Paul says, seen by over 500 brethren at the same time, and most of them remain. Now, if you take 500, and divided by two, that's 250. That meant that at the time when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there were still over 250 eyewitnesses alive that anyone could have gone to and asked about, did you truly see Jesus? Amen? You cannot get that many people to agree on a lie together. And he said, while they were still alive, he told them, he said there were that, no, those, that many eyewitnesses, right? So now, the historians, when they gather evidence, they always take the earliest evidence. So a creed like this, about Jesus dying and rising again, written within five years, that is a very solid proof. Like if there's an accident out here in the street, and I run out and I see what happened, first eyewitness, right? You're not going to wait till somebody comes one week later from Cape Town and ask that person what happened. It's the person that was there that will be able to provide information. If someone comes from Cape Town a week later, they only have hearsay what they've heard. But if you were there on the spot, who would the police talk to? The people that were there. Amen? So, so the, the disciples were willing to die for the belief that the risen Jesus had appeared to them. And they were so fully persuaded and, um, and ready to die for their belief was that it was not something they made up. You know, I mean, if I had 
been part of a crime, part of stealing the body of Jesus out of the tomb, for example, would I be willing to die to say he was risen? I don't think so. I don't think people would be willing to die for a lie. And all of them, all of the apostles, for a lie? No. But now another, uh, so Stephen was stoned in Acts 760. It says that Stephen was stoned. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. But he was stoned while preaching the gospel. He was so fully persuaded. And if you go through the book of Acts, you see, you see they claim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what they proclaimed. Amen? So he died for it. And James, the brother of John, they slew with the sword. It says in Acts 12:2. then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So in other words, they were so persuaded. There was absolutely no shadow of doubt. They knew what they knew, and they were willing to die for it. Amen? Amen. And in the book of Acts, you see, um, there's so many references to Jesus having appeared. Acts 2.32, this Jesus, God has raised up of bits, we are all witnesses. 3.15, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised up from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And they spoke this in the very city where he was crucified, while it was still fresh in the hearts and minds of everybody. Why is there no record of someone speaking up and saying that's not so? Because everyone knew. Everyone knew it was so. And 1041, God raised, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Yeah. And 10, 13, 30 to 31, but God raised him up from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. The resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. Amen? So, Jesus, we can safely conclude that Jesus was risen from the dead. He rose from the dead. Amen? Amen. Now, in the people who were not followers of Jesus truly believed, you're going to look at Paul, who was an enemy of, of the faith, right? He, he persecuted Christians. He had them put to death. He had them imprisoned. He was very, very uh, antagonistic. antagonistic. Thank you, Philip. So he was one of the most dangerous enemies of the church who was vehemently persecuting the believers, yet Something happened to Paul, who was then known as Saul, which led him to join those he persecuted. Now, what, what happened? What happened? What do you think happened? I mean, one day he is pursuing to kill and destroy and put out, and the next day he turns around and joins them. What happened? What do you think happened? He had seen Christ. Jesus appeared to him. Remember in Acts 9, verses 3 to 6, it said, 
And as he journeyed, this is now Saul, he came to Damascus and suddenly a light shone round, around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Realize he said, Lord. So obviously he knew it was the Lord, right? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Okay, so kick against it. Listen. But trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Paul said, And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Now, for somebody that was that antagonistic after the resurrection to turn around and join the very ones he persecuted, something outstanding must have taken place. Amen? Amen. And then we have uh, James, the brother of Jesus. James was a skeptic. James, he denied Jesus during his lifetime. We're going to see now accounts from both Mark and John. In Mark 3, 31 to 35, Mark said, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And the multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around the circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mothers and brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. So obviously, he was not, James, the brother of Jesus, was not included in the believers at that time. Amen? Amen yeah. And then John says in John 7, 3 to 5, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. His brothers did not believe in him. Now, also at the crucifixion, his brothers were not there when Jesus was crucified. But after the resurrection, in Acts 1.14, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Why? In 1 Corinthians 15.7, it says, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So James, the brother of Jesus, had also seen the resurrected Jesus. And how did that impact James? He became not only a believer, but he also became an apostle, a leader, and eventually gave his life as a martyr for the faith. He died for the faith. And during the lifetime of Jesus, he was a skeptic and did not believe. They even mocked him. Go show yourself if you're that. To go. But after, after his death and resurrection, there was a change of heart. All of a sudden, he became a believer. And not just hardly following. Wholehearted, became an apostle, gave his life 
Amen? So, Paul and James, men who were not followers of Jesus during his lifetime, one being a persecutor and the other a skeptic, gave their lives on account of having seen the risen Jesus. Amen? And another skeptic we won't read now was Thomas. He said, unless I see, yeah. I won't believe. But did he see? He saw. Jesus showed him, and he believed. Amen? Amen. So, all the historical records. Did you know that the Gospels are historical documents? And the book of Acts is a historical document, and all of that is evidence of the resurrection, the transformed lives. Amen? Amen. Now, the Muslims, they have what they call the hallucination theory. Do you know what it is to hallucinate? If you hallucinate, you think that you see something, but in reality, it's not actually there. So, so that is a well-known phenomen medical phenomenon <laughs> that people who are recently bereaved of loved ones may hallucinate their presence. They think that the person that passed is with them. They think they see, but only they see. Nobody else, even if they're in the same room, see. But it's a hallucination. Like it, it happens in their mind's eye. And that is a medical phenomenon. So Muslims say, that um, that these the disciples were hallucinating because they had been bereaved, right? But now, would Paul, who was such a vehement antagonistic persecutor, would he feel bereaved if Jesus had died? He would feel relieved because he was so against it, so sure it was a false religion, so sure what was happening was wrong, that he gave his all to persecute, put out, put a stop to. Why would he hallucinate? It's the bereaved people that hallucinate, not those that would seemingly rejoice. Amen? And then also James, the brother, he was a skeptic. He didn't even believe that Jesus was the Son of God during Jesus' lifetime. Why would he hallucinate? And do you think that over 500 people at the same time would hallucinate the exact same thing. He said he appeared to over 500. And Paul even said, now at the time of me writing this, at least half of them or more are still alive. That means if you don't believe my word, go and talk to them. Go ask them. They're still alive. They can still verify. And not just one person who could maybe make up a story. No, hundreds, 200 and more. Go ask them for yourself. You want evidence, you have it. Ask. Amen? Amen. So, the hallucination theory therefore does not jive with about 500 people having see, seeing Jesus at the same time. And it also does not fit the medical bereavement phenomenon. Right? So it was not a hallucination. So according to the minimal facts approach, the best explanation for the facts by far is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Every other explanation ignores or strains the fact. I mean, you have to strain to say that over 500 people 
hallucinated at the same time at the very same thing? That's unheard of. There's no medical record of anything like that happening. Amen? Amen. Now, the next point is that the tomb was empty. So in that point, we have three strands of evidence. Number one, the Jerusalem factor. Number two, the enemy's attestation of witness, what the enemy said. And number three, the testimony of women. So number one, the Jerusalem factor. Jesus was publicly executed and buried in Jerusalem. And then his resurrection was proclaimed in the very same city. In Acts 2.32, Peter said, This Jesus God has raised up, of whom we are all witnesses. It would have been impossible for Christianity to get off the ground if Jesus' body was still in the tomb. Amen? Amen. The Romans or Jewish authorities could have simply gone over to the tomb, viewed the corpse, and the misunderstanding would have been over. They said, this is not true, guys. Come follow us. Let us show you. There is the body. If it was made up, why didn't they do that? Because what the disciples said was true. Amen? And they said it right there in the city where it happened. They didn't say it some hundreds of miles away. No, right there in Jerusalem. Amen? And the other factor was that the enemies, the evidence of proof of the enemies, in other words, what were the skeptics saying? They said that the disciples stole the body. But the idea that the disciples stole the body is a lame explanation. Are we supposed to believe that they conspired to steal the body, pulled it off, and, they were, and then were willing to suffer continuously and even die for what they knew was a lie? That is such an absurd idea that scholars universally rejected. Again, the soldiers are bribed. In Matthew 28, 11 to 15, it says, now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while, he slept, while we slept. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Do you think that they would have paid the soldiers to tell a lie or not to say if they could have gone right there and seen the body in the tomb? Of course not. This is further proof that the tomb was empty, but the body was gone. Amen? Amen. So, the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. Of course, the disciples did not have the motive, means, or even opportunity to actually steal the body. And why would they do that, and then knowingly and willingly die for what they knew to be a lie? Now, the last point I have here is the testimony of women the testimony of women. 
Why is that important? Because in both first century Jewish and Roman cultures, women were lowly esteemed and their testimony was considered questionable. There, is, there are old rabbinical, you know the rabbis that were the teachers of the Jews, right, that said, let the words of the law be burned rather than delivered to women. And blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. That was the attitude towards women in that day. So women's testimony was regarded so worthless that they were not even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. If you are going to concoct or make up a story in an effort to fool others, you would never in that day have hurt your own credibility by saying women discovered the empty grave. It would be very unlikely that the gospel writers would invent testimony like this because they wouldn't get any mileage out of it. In fact, it could hurt them. If they had felt the freedom to simply make things up, surely they would have claimed that maybe Peter or John were the first to find the empty tomb. But this shows that the gospel writers faithfully recorded what actually happened. Amen? Women who were despised and not believed and not allowed to testify, and you say, we go by their testimony. Oh, we'll throw it all out. Why did they do that if it was made up? If it was made up, then they would have not done that. Amen? So when we consider these three factors, the Jerusalem factors, the enemy's account, the testimony of the women, there are good historical reasons for concluding that Jesus' tomb was empty. Do I have five more minutes? Yeah, Half an hour. No, how much, how much time do I have? All right, five minutes. So now, Muslims refuse to believe that the tomb was empty. And the reason they give for not believing that is that they say that the four accounts in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, differ. That in Matthew, it talks about there being two women. In Mark, it talks about the, at the side of the grave, at the tomb. In Mark, it talks about there being three women. In Luke, there's a group of women. In John, it's just Mary Magdalene who went alone. So they say, based on that, it's unreliable, and you can't believe it. However, these discrepancies, also these discrepancies sometimes make people doubt the reliability of the account of the empty tomb. But, listen to this, it does not cause the historians any concern because any of the discrepancies or variances or differences only occur concerning the secondary details. The core story is the same in each gospel. So the core story has been agreed upon. What is the core story? That Jesus died by crucifixion and rose was resurrected, and that all the Gospels agree to the core story. Like, so we can have, uh, we can have confidence that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. Okay, now for example, if I would interview three or four people that were on board the Titanic when it sank, 
And if I would want to know exactly how things went down, I might get three or four different accounts. For sure I would get three or four different accounts. But would that make it unreliable that the Titanic went down? No, because for sure it did go down and the core story would be that it went down. Even if the details perceived were different, right? So when we read the word, we need to read it in context. We need to read the, like the full account and do these accounts agree? Is there evidence that supports the accounts? And as we have seen, there is actually evidence, right? So now, in concluding, so what do we do now? We don't, we want Christianity to spread, right? We want to see people saved, born again, lives transformed and renewed. But that's not going to happen by itself. We are to shine the light. We are the light of the world. What does light mean? Remember, we uh, actually we didn't read it, but I'll read it now. But in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So in other words, and we saw uh, Hosea 4, 6 that says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. But to be able to give understanding, knowledge and understanding to people so that they can believe, that is shining our light. Amen? And that's why we study. That's why we come here to get equipped so that we can be wise. He says, he that wins souls is wise. We need to be wise unto salvation. Be sure that we can give an answer. And you know, most likely, we are going to have someone ask us something that we don't know. But then we can say, I will find out. I will come back. There's no shame in that, right? And just remember that love, it says, the love of God is what leads people to repentance. Still, we need to know that so we can be fully persuaded in our hearts, right? We need to know, but really it is the love of God that leads people to repentance. What time is it? Do I, am I up? Okay, great. So that's what I... So actually, basically, the proof of Christianity, that is what the resurrection is about. The fact that Jesus rose, the undeniable fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The undeniable fact that Christianity is the only religion with an empty grave. Amen? Amen. Amen. The undeniable fact that history proves the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you go by this approach, the minimal facts, they always take what makes it uh, more likely to have happened. And according to that, the truth of the gospel is the most likely explanation of what happened at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to connect with us, or if you'd like us to pray with you, please contact us at info at gracelife.co. If you'd like to order more resources or discover more about us, you can visit our website 
at www.gracelife.co or find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. 